0: Hello and welcome back. Hi, everyone. Hope you are having an excellent week. I'm excited to come back today and talk a little bit more about this concept of regulation, which um, I discussed in the last podcast episode, kind of looking at Dysregulation, hyperarousal, hypoarousal—what that means for students who have incurred trauma. And today, I'm—we're just going to dig in a bit more. I'm coming to you again uh, without a novice, but hoping that uh, you will still take something from this. I have to say, in the beginning, I had all these great dreams about having different novices on and, and acting myself as a novice when there was a different knowledgeable expert that could come. And then, you know, the global pandemic hit, and I had to move apartments and my partner is in the process of setting up bookshelves (laughs) as i'm recording this so here we are uh let's dive in so regulation is very much a buzzword right now not only just in uh in the trauma field but also in the uh, education spheres in fact um it's it's definitely thrown around a lot in the trauma-informed communities um, there are definitely some misconceptions when it comes to regulation, because I think a lot of times people say the word regulate, we need our students to regulate, we need to teach regulation, when in reality, uh, from a psychological perspective, there are various types of regulation. So there's the concept itself of regulation, which is the body's ability to regulate temperature, uh, you know, um, liquid amounts like sweat, things like that. And then there are these two more psychological processes that are much more cognitive. And so the main two phrases that you'll hear when it comes to regulation is either self-regulation and then another process, which is called emotion regulation. And a lot of times these terms are used synonymously when, in fact, they're very, very different entities. So before um, we dive in, I just want to invite us all to pause for a moment and consider this question. So we defined the word regulation last time. We talked about what it actually means to be in a state of calm, to maintain stress within a window of tolerance, to be focused and relaxed in whatever way. That that means for each of our bodies individually, but I'm curious for us to kind of just pause and think about this question. I often pose this to educators when working with people because we, as teachers, we want strategies. We want the regulatory strategies. We want to know what to do. Um, But often, I think we, we just have to ask this first. Can we regulate, can our bodies actually be regulated when we have police officers in schools? Can we regulate the brain and the body when we are not addressing racism? Can we regulate the student's brain when we are enacting microaggressions and perpetuating harm? Can we regulate when, or ask students to regulate when they are walking through metal detectors and having random backpack searches? Is it possible? Um, and so I think just going into that and knowing that that's a question, like while we have to look at the locus of control and what we can do in our own classrooms, we also, also have to think about the system and if the system is set up to allow for student regulation, adult regulation. So let's define those two terms as they exist in their um, separate entities distinctly. So self-regulation is the self's capacity for altering behaviors. Now it greatly increases flexibility, the adaptability of human behavior. Essentially self-regulation is what allows people to adjust their actions in a broad range of social and situational demands. Now, a lot of times people talk about self-control in the classroom. We need to teach self-control. Um, Dr. Stuart Shanker is a very renowned psychologist who studies this concept of self-regulation. He coins it self-reg versus self-control. And he says that there is a profound difference between self-regulation and self-control because self-control is simply that, control, right? It's about inhibiting, stopping strong impulses. But self-regulation is this idea that we can reduce the intensity of a strong impulse by managing this low stress load and recovery. So self-regulation, in fact, is what makes self-control possible. And often when we are able to regulate and self-regulate, we actually don't need to exhibit or exert self-control because we can process, inhibit strong impulses, reduce the frequency, reduce the intensity, and then allow ourselves to work through and, and kind of regain that regulated state. So self-regulation is housed at the top of the brainstem, and this is where a person from their prefrontal cortex actually alters their brain state and adapts their responses. This includes our behavior, so we can regulate our behavior. We can regulate, self-regulate our thoughts, our impulses, our appetites, and even our task performance. Specific to self-regulation, there is up-regulation, which is where we actually increase alertness. We increase our overall response to a stimulus or an experience. And then there is down-regulation. And this is the process of reducing or suppressing a response to a stimulus. A lot of times we will hear this called calming. So, an example of upregulation would be something like standing up and swinging your arms around in a circular motion. An example of downregulation would be breathing or um, doing a mindfulness activity or uh, you know a calming mindfulness activity or a meditation to lower the energy. So again, self-regulation, we are inhibiting strong impulses, We, or that's self-control, sorry. We are reducing the intensity of a strong impulse. We're not saying that we can't react and respond to it, but we are working through it in a healthier way to maintain or get back to that regulated kind of window of tolerance that we all have. Upregulation is when we upregulate, we give ourselves a little boost of energy, and downregulation is when we have to reduce or suppress that response where we need to calm ourselves down. I have seen a lot in the literature, a lot in classrooms where teachers will say, We're teaching regulation. We're teaching self-regulation. And really what they're teaching is down regulation. They are teaching children to calm their brains, to calm their bodies, which is incredibly important and a necessary skill. Um, But it's not the only type of regulation. And sometimes students need up regulation, too. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. So here's some strategies for self-regulation, some actual things that we can do in the classroom. So the use of fidgets is incredibly helpful. Um, I'm happy to talk more about using fidgets and how to structure them and what that looks like. I'm, I'm actually holding a fidget now. I always have a fidget in my hand um, just to allow some focused energy to um, help. For me, it's down regulation, but depending on the type of fidget, it could be an up regulatory activity for students too. Breathing exercises, as I said, are really helpful. Um, you know, just a really simple one right out the gate is called triangle breath. This can be done in person. This can be done virtually. I've hosted a series of webinars this summer um, for families in Detroit, and we always start the activity with um, a triangle breath, which is just breathing in for three, and you count it up, and then holding the breath for three, which then pushes you into your prefrontal cortex to be kind of thinking more, and then breathing out for three. Um, And maybe at the end of this, I'll lead us in it, or maybe in class, we'll do it together. Holding a yoga pose is another really good um, strategy for self-regulation. Doing a few yoga flows, like those mini flows where they're just moving into two to three poses that are easy. There's chair yoga. There's um, you know sitting yoga, classroom yoga. There's lots of things like that. Listening to music is a great self-reg strategy. Singing, um, singing, or any anything that allows for the b- vibration in your um, vocal cords to happen. So, like laughter, um, drinking water, eating, all of those things. Um, and then art can be a really effective self-regulatory strategy as well. You're kind of channeling some of your energy into something happening on the page, whether it's coloring or painting or drawing. We did a lot of drawing in my class, a lot of coloring where they had to focus on the color in front of them, um, kind of allow them to uh, mitigate the intensity of the impulses or the stimulus that was coming into them. So as you're teaching self-regulation to your students, it is really, really important that you have some pre-established, very clear boundaries and expectations. So if this is about fidgets, if this is doing a single yoga pose, if this is a breathing exercise, the very first thing we wanna do is have those boundaries and the expectations set. The next thing we can do is teach about the brain. And if this is younger students, we could teach about the upstairs, downstairs brain. This is older students, we might consider talking about a couple of the different parts of the brain. Am I often focused on like the the three to four that were most important? And then we can talk about what it looks like when we can't necessarily control the responses in our body, you know, when we flip our lid, essentially, when the downstairs brain takes over, when the upstairs brain gets shut off. However, we can also then, the next step is to explain that there's something we can do when we're in our downstairs brain. We can self-regulate and even teaching students that the word regulate just means to change um, could be helpful. So maybe we'll brainstorm or teach some ways that we can upregulate, we can increase our energy, whether that's jumping jacks, a quick movement. Um, in fact, even the we've, we're starting to see in studies that the blue light from screens like video games can upregulate kids. I have an interesting aside that I once learned that that is a very real coping skill for students who have experienced trauma is playing video games because it um, allows them to move into this kind of somewhat regulated state where the blue light is giving them more energy when they might feel depleted um, in response to their stress or their trauma. Um, And then we can also brainstorm things that we can do to downregulate, to calm, like breathing and resting and maybe some mindful activities or holding a yoga pose. And then one thing I always did with my students when it came to self-regulation was having them choose an activity that they wanted to try for upregulating and downregulating. We can also choose one that we will model and practice whole class, depending on the age of the students. Um, for my second to fifth graders, I often taught one calming, you know, down regulation strategy every two weeks. So we would teach a new one on Monday. We would practice review it throughout the first week and then allow students to use it in the second week. Um, But for older students, providing a small list of things they can choose from can also really be helpful. So when teaching self-reg, we're not teaching self-control. We are teaching the ability to actually change the brain and the body um, to reduce the intensity and sometimes the frequency of those impulses to actually um, make tangible shifts their behaviors, their thoughts, their reactions by using some of these strategies. So now let's talk about emotion regulation. So emotion regulation is, and James Gross is one of the pioneers in the field of this, and he gives a really succinct and beautiful definition. But emotion regulation, he says, is just our ability to influence which emotions we have when we have them and how we experience and express them. So it is incredibly important that in order for any healthy emotion regulation to occur, we first have to be able to actually name and identify feelings. We have to name what we're feeling. We have to be able to say how we feel them and then what causes us to feel them in order for us to appropriately cope. We can't teach a coping skill if we don't know what they're coping with. So the process then for emotion regulation, essentially there is this large model that James Gross and other scholars have developed where essentially there is a situation and the situation can be real or imagined that suddenly becomes emotionally relevant to the brain. So then in this moment, as the situation is selected, and it becomes emotionally relevant, our brain goes into this situation modification. And this is where direct efforts are taken to change the situation to alter its emotional impact. So we might modify the characteristics of the situation. We might downplay the significance, show restraint. We might look for social support. Um, And this is where some of those pre-taught social emotional learning SEL skills like uh, reframing and problem solving and asking for help, this is where those things can be initiated so that you can kind of preemptively um, work through the emotions so that it doesn't move on to being a, a full on response. So then if we can't modify the situation, we then move into attentional deployment where we then direct all of our attention to the emotional situation. Again, we then experience some cognitive change so if we weren't able to cope, if we couldn't deploy that previously now here in this cognitive change phase is where strategies can be used to evaluate and interpret and cope with and cope with the feeling before an entire emotional response fully arises and keep in mind this happens very very quickly like we are moving through this in milliseconds in our brain. And then from there, once we've evaluated and interpreted the emotion, we then have this option to modulate the response, which is when an emotional response is generated in our body, which sets off a change in experience, a change in behavior, or a psychological response. So again, thinking about emotion regulation, the ability to influence what emotions we have when we have them how we experience them and how we express them. So obviously this is incredibly important to students in the classroom, to the adults in the classroom, um, but very different from self-regulation, which is a little bit more about behavior, a little bit more about thoughts and actions. Emotion regulation is all about feelings all about emotions so with that then the strategies to helping students work through the the emotions the feelings that arise is there all the strategies are related to feelings Um, so very similar to some of the other sel intervention ideas strategies you may have heard from so things like naming the feeling and that is incredibly important. There is this um, great book by, I think it's John Gottman, who wrote about raising emotionally intelligent children. And he has five steps for actually teaching kids to be emotionally intelligent, to be in touch with their emotions. And the very first step is being able to actually say, I feel sad. I feel mad. I am scared because that is not something that comes naturally to people. Emotion regulation is something that is actually learned um, both explicitly taught through parents, and then also implicitly, the way that we model um, kind of the nonverbals and other things. I'm actually on a study right now, studying emotion regulation, parents' emotion regulation, and their how that's um, playing out in their two-year-olds and their toddlers' ability to regulate their emotions. Um, okay, so other strategies: talking about the feeling. So once you name it, actually sharing it with someone else is really powerful. Writing in a journal, um, paying attention to the thoughts that occur before and after the feeling. Going, you know, talking to a counselor, to a therapist, to a school psychologist, some sort of actual emotional uh, interventionist. I love my my therapist. Often says that um, you know when you when something breaks in my car, I take it to a mechanic because mechanics are specialized in in working on a car. And sometimes in the human body, when something goes wrong, not necessarily breaks, but when something is a little bit off, we try to work on it ourselves, but we are not the experts in emotion. We know ourselves, we know our own emotions. There are so many strategies and things that can be done to really help process and cope with emotions. And so my therapist calls herself an emotional emotion mechanic. She is the person who has the strategies, the tools, and the skill sets to actually help us work through um, and fix, for lack of a better term, what it is that is slightly off. And so I think naming that, going to therapy, seeing a professional, seeking professional help is Um, incredibly, incredibly important. Naming the feelings after they pass is another great strategy. If we can't have students name it before, if they're unable to say it before the emotion or as the emotion arises, after the fact, we can revisit and we can say, you know, you seemed really sad or tell me what you thought or what you were feeling when you were, you know, whatever the emotional reaction was. We can teach reframing of feelings, recognizing triggers that cause emotional responses. Um, Positive self-affirmation is a great one. Self-talk is incredibly important. Um, Showing gratitude, saying gratitude, um, being, you know, grateful and thankful for things and practicing that can contribute to positive self-talk. And then um, some elements of mindfulness can also, some of those more um, like affirmation-like mindful activities or meditations can be really helpful. So how do we teach emotion regulation to students? Well, again, very different from self-regulation where it's not just about, you know, getting a fidget and learning how to use it. Um, But we can actually start by teaching a mini lesson on the big six emotions. And this can be a five-minute discussion where you put up your feelings, faces, you show a poster, you have a PowerPoint slide. Uh, and you talk about what are the big six. So research has identified six big emotions that every human is inherently born with. Um, If you think about the movie, if you've seen that Pixar movie, Inside Out, they do an excellent, excellent job um, showing and kind of characterizing these. So the big six emotions are anger, disgust, fear, happiness, sadness, and surprise. And as a little side note, you'll notice that anger, disgust, fear, and sadness are all negative emotions. So four of the six are negative. Happiness is positive. And surprise is neutral. There is no feeling that is – or there is no – um Affect that emerges when you feel surprised. You are temporarily stunned, and so it's neither good or bad. You could be surprised and then happy. You know, you can have a combination, and then that would lead to a positive affect. You could also be surprised, shocked, and then incredibly sad or angry. But surprise on its own is neutral. So we teach a lot of negative feelings. And if you think about that, if the big six, if four of the six are negative and only one is positive and one is neutral, we're really working in emotion regulation with kind of processing through essentially mostly negative feelings, which I think is is really interesting. We don't really focus on how to teach and regulate joy or happiness. Um, I think that's really lacking in the literature. So once we teach them and tell them what the six emotions are, um, and again, this is for any age level. Then we can ask students to, or then we together with our students can define what that actually means, uh, describe where and how it might be felt in the body, like what actually happens when the body gets angry brainstorm with students what they look and sound and feel like. When that em- emerges, or what about happiness? Like, how and where do you feel it in your body when you're incredibly happy? Like, surprise would be a really interesting one to talk about. Um, but we have to actually say, you know, to be angry is to, and then you know, insert whatever the the definition, the working definition is. Um, Longman's dictionary has a great kid friendly definition of all these feelings. And then, you know, talking about where and how it might be felt in the body, because a lot of times kids can't identify what they're feeling because they don't know what it means. They don't have the working definition. They don't know when your armpits start to prickle that maybe you're, you know, you're feeling scared. When your palms get sweaty, that maybe you're angry. Uh, When your stomach starts to hurt, maybe you're feeling disgust. So we have to make those connections for students. And then we can introduce the idea of regulating feelings kind of in a similar way that we taught self-regulation where, you know, we might talk about the emotion regulation process. Talk about two times that you know, two feelings we might need to intervene when we when those feelings emerge. So when our body first notices the feeling, we can begin the process of regulating. We can journal, we can talk about it, we can name the feeling, um, we can you know reframe, or as the feeling starts to become bigger to overwhelm the brain and body. So either that first initial um, kind of noticing or observation. That's sometimes really hard for kids. So oftentimes they're not going to be able to do much until that feeling really starts to overwhelm the brain and body. So, and even that pairing it with a self-regulatory strategy of, you know, like a, you know using a fidget to get the prefrontal cortex, that upstairs brain turned back on so that they can name the feeling um, is really helpful. So they definitely go together, self-regulation and emotion regulation, but they are two distinct entities. So what does this mean in the classroom? So in the classroom, we can provide space for regulation. And this is important for students of, of all ages. Um, and you'll see this in a million different ways. But in my classroom, I mean, I've had it a, so many different ways. I've had a single chair. I've had a table. I've had a corner. I've had a tent. Uh, in my most recent classroom, I had this little pop-up tent area. It was like this little hanging thing. Uh, and I called it the regulation station. And um, but I mean, I've done like the cool down spot, the chill zone, the Zen chair, you know, just what the chill chair, whatever it is, however you want to frame it. Um, But if there is a place for students to know that it's one safe and two predictable, that they can always go to the yellow chair, that they can always walk into the tent, that they have that space in the classroom, that it's not moving all the time, that it's not sometimes at their desk and sometimes somewhere else. Um, That's a really good thing for students who have experienced trauma. So we can structure it in a way that students use it when they need it. And not when it's convenient for the teacher. Um, that's a really important piece about teaching self-regulation and emotion regulation is that it's really about empowering students to learn more about themselves. So this is not like you can go to the chill chair once you finish math. It's, it's about kids knowing what they need and taking what they need um, in those moments. And so I think one of the biggest things for me as a classroom teacher who has done this a lot was I had to let go of that negative thought that, Um, you know, they're using it to get out of classwork because I think initially I definitely thought that. And then what I learned is that once I explicitly taught students how to name feelings, how to read their own body, um, how to read the cues in their head and built really authentic relationships with students, then my my students never took advantage of it. And I noticed that other colleagues who would say like, oh, they're always in the yellow chair. They just always want to go there and they never finish their math. I would then start to ask questions like, well, you know, what what have you taught about feelings and what do you know about this student specifically and where they feel anger in their body? Or what do you know about um, some of the behaviors that they're exhibiting in response to a response to stress, stressful situation? And it was like, oh, well, no, no, that's not that's not relevant. They just want to get out of work. So I think there's things that we as teachers can do um, to preemptively set ourselves up for success. And again, those biggest things are explicitly teaching expectations, boundaries, how to use the tools, how to use the space, what the feelings are, what the feelings feel and look like and sound like in the body, um, social scenarios to practice and to identify. I mean, I even like in the first week of school, we were still doing get to know you building, you know, relationship building activities. We do like a 10 minute where I would flash a picture on the screen and they would have to guess the emotion that that person was feeling and just look at facial cues and, and nonverbal cues. Even that was hard for kids. So, a lot of teaching, a lot of pre teaching can go into this um, to make it successful. So the tools and the, the regulatory tools that are included in the classroom area are completely based on whatever is most comfortable. But if you're looking to slowly add tools to your room um, or to your space, I have a couple recommended kind of MVPs of regulatory tools. And we often, I always, always taught that they are regulatory tools, not toys, And we said that all the time, tools, not toys, tools, not toys, so that they knew, oh, I really do have a tool. I actually have something like a math manipulative. Like I have something that I can use to help me work through my anger, to help me with the stress of this math homework or this math problem or this science experiment Um, and not something that they could just with. It really is amazing to see kids actually figure out what they need and what their body needs to be successful in the classroom. So obviously finger fidgets are my number one, number one. I had it to where, you know, I had buckets of them and they're so cheap on online where you can just purchase them. Um, A rocking chair is an incredible one. I noticed that the rocking behavior, and I can talk about this more with brainstem interventions, but the actual act of rocking your body back and forth um, mimics that which you received as an infant, and it calms your brainstem immediately, almost immediately. It's really magical. So rocking chair. um, Also, interestingly enough, things like hoods, sweatshirt hoods, blankets, Um, That mimics the swaddle, like a baby swaddle, and that can immediately calm uh, and help regulate your nervous system, self-regulate. So that I always allowed hoods and sweatshirts, um, blankets, things like that in my class because if that's what their body needed to help them calm down, then I was so good with that. Um, TheraPutty is an incredible tool. Actually was invented by um, doctors in a hospital who noticed that their patients were having a ton of anxiety right before surgeries. And so they invented this putty that is – it's not – it's not like Play-Doh, but what it is is it's a hard kind of substance, and it, in the temperature of your hand, changes consistency. That's the best way to describe it. Theraputty, T-H-E-R-A-P-U-T-T-Y. You can look that up. It has different um, – like textures, different um, weights to it, like and and kids have preferences, which I think is so interesting. Um, and then the last for that kind of upregulation piece was um, stationary bike pedals, which was really magical. So uh, I'm gonna come back in just a second. I'm gonna finish regulating part two, not really part two. I just have a few more moments, but the recording is gonna cut off in 30 minutes. So let me couch it here by saying I'm going to come back and talk a little bit more about regulating in the classroom um, before we end it. So stay tuned. All right, we're back. That was anticlimactic. In a a cooler world, I would have like a podcast advertisement or something. Imagine, imagine if I was that cool. I'm telling you. I'm not. So, okay. So let's talk a little bit more about regulating and and what this means for us as a teacher in a classroom. So one of the biggest things that I have learned from personal experience of being in many rooms with many different, um, you know, ages and demographics of students who 100% of them have experienced some type of stress, chronic stress, trauma – is that the idea that we cannot as the adult bully kids into regulating. This is a really really big one. So, and I had to really check myself and unpack what it was in me that was causing me to do this, but instead of telling a student like you need to regulate, like you need to calm down, you need to, etc we have to really wait for them. And this can be frustrating. And I know there are some people in class who are going to say, but what about the tests? And what about my standards? And what about my evaluation? And this is one of those things where it's a it's a both and, right? Where we have to give them what they need um, because instead of telling them what they need. And another thing about it too, I think we talked about this a little bit with the trauma affected brain, but When the brain becomes dysregulated, when there is stress in the body and adrenaline and cortisol, the listening center of the brain shuts off. So students are not listening to us when they're dysregulated physiologically. They're not choosing not to listen. Like they literally are not able to listen to us during moments of intense dysregulation. And so because the listening center is turned off, it's already hard to engage in that moment. And so waiting and allowing a student to take what they need to tell you what they need um, is so important. And I found truly, like I I really have lived this, that my students really did know when to use the space, when to use the chair, when to use the tools, and they took it when they needed it. You know, like in my classroom, I only had two um, sets of stationary bike pedals, and so At the beginning, it was like I got so many questions about like how do you ensure that they don't fight over these tools and how do you ensure that it's not a conversation or an argument or like a, you know, stealing or not sharing. And again, going back to the pre-teaching, the stuff that happens even before I showed them the bike pedals, like those bike pedals were not in our room on the first day of school. And so with that, they did not know that those existed. And so when we're having conversations around emotions and feelings and self-regulation and stress in the body and flipping your lid, they're not seeing the bike pedals and saying, oh, I want those. Those look really cool. And so by the time the bike pedals were introduced in week two or three, then it was something very different where they knew about their body, they knew about their brain, and then you know there was an opportunity for them to try it and see if they liked it. Interestingly enough. Enough, I had a lot of students who did not like the bike pedals. I had a couple of students who really did not like the rocking chair. Um, I had some yoga balls. I had several kids who loved them, some who hated them. I mean, the thing about all of these regulatory tools is that they really are specific to students. And so in the same way that we differentiate our instruction and, you know, our activities and our learning experiences, we kind of have to remember to differentiate tools and the regulatory process. Like not every kid I am not a proponent of mindfulness it does not work for me I don't I don't like it I know the benefits I write about the benefits I read about them Lots of teachers have had great success and I, cannot turn my brain off to meditate. I don't like lying there in silence. Um, But I love to do active breathing. And I love to do strategies for myself that I know will work. And so we have to be mindful that kids are different and not every strategy or tool is going to work or feel good to them. So a way that I would do this is at the beginning as I was introducing the tools one at a time, We'd get in a community circle. Every kid would get to touch it and experience it, and share what they liked about it, what they didn't like. Um, I've done like gallery walks where they visited each of the tools, and they did a little write up of what, which ones they liked, which ones were comfortable, which ones they didn't like. They checked off the top three things like that. So, and again, all of this is for in-person classes, but you know, the breathing, um, the music, some of those strategies, the the emotional regulation strategies of naming feelings, teaching about feelings, all of this can happen in a, di- in a digital space as well. So the other thing too is um, we can, you know, continue to provide opportunities for regulation for students wherever they feel most safe. So of my 30 kids, most wanted to stay in their seat think part of this was because they were fifth graders and wanted not to be seen going to the regulation station. But, you know, using therapy or a finger fidget, something at the desk um, was good because it was kind of the place where they felt most safe. A lot of kids would say like, no, I like my desk better. I don't need to go, you know, sit at the chair or whatever. And this is OK. It's great because being trauma informed really means giving the brain what it needs and not what we think it needs or what we think is most convenient at the moment. The other thing um, that we can really consider and encourage families to do um, and use, because it's so easy, is having water, drinking water and eating snacks as a way to regulate as well. So this isn't necessarily tied to like a classroom calming area or a chair, but actually getting a drink of water or eating a cracker scientifically helps regulate the parasympathetic uh, central nervous system. Then that's because the vagus nerve, V-A-G-U-S, Um, is connected to the throat. And so the constriction of the throat through chewing or swallowing activates this nerve, which then keeps the body or allows the body to move into a calmer state. So we can consider allowing kids to get drinks of water at any time. I was lucky in California, every classroom had a water fountain in the classroom um, because we were outside, you know, the schools were portables and not one single building. But, you know, for for students in, in places where they have a water fountain down the hall, I mean, I think allowing kids to bring their own water bottles or to go get water without worrying about, like – the structure of having a really intense like water pass or you get three drinks of water per week uh, can be really helpful because, you know, we want to set these parameters. We want to set strict parameters around like no food sharing, healthy snacks, only getting water when we need it, appropriate times to eat. Like if you're on the carpet and, you know, you're doing a mini lesson right in front of students, like bringing a thing of crackers to the carpet around a bunch of kids is probably not the best idea. But knowing that, that students can have their most basic needs met, the food and the water, when it comes up, like when they feel they need it is so huge for students. So. I want to go back to the last episode and revisit two of the students that we talked about in a little bit of a case study. So, do you remember Adrian, who would sleep? Um, he was in my sixth grade class. He would sit in a daze. He would totally check out during the school day. He was pretty much constantly in a state of hypo arousal due to some pretty intense trauma. So, he really be- benefited from up-regulation, self-regulation strategies. He loved any opportunity where he could give his body some energy. So whether that was doing a few jumping jacks, whole class when we started the day, um, using a finger fidget so that he could have something sensory to keep him a little bit more alert. If his fingers were moving, his brain was a little bit more stimulated. Um, those things really, really helped him to, to kind of upregulate, to get some energy into his body. And then there was Jay. Remember Jay, my, my energizer bunny who literally never stopped moving? So Jay learned three breathing strategies. Well, he learned every strategy, but the only ones that he really loved were three breathing strategies that he could use himself At any moment that he needed to pause, at any moment where he felt like he needed to focus, Um, and that made a massive difference. In fact, I would oftentimes look over at Jay, and I would see him drawing the little triangle uh, on his, you know, using his finger on his desk, and it, it just, it really helped him, the other thing about uh Jay is that he really loved the therapy, which we talked about. You know, it changes consistency based on the temperature of his hand. And so he would channel some of his energy into these kind of rote hand movements, doing the same motions over and over. And that kind of sent a wave of calm into his body. And again, when his fingers were moving, the rest of him could kind of take a breather and actually focus on the task at hand, on the lesson, on the, you know, whatever it was that we were. We're doing so just two easy examples of um, some things that can actually really help our students I think too that oftentimes people hear about being trauma-informed or trauma-informed practice and they think, oh, well, I'll just add a bunch of fidgets. Oh, I'll give a calming corner. But really what this episode was hopefully illuminated for you was that it's a combination of many things. It's the fidgets paired with the lessons about emotions. It's the strategies for breathing paired with the knowledge of what self-regulation is and what stress looks and feels and sounds like in our body. Um, We have to do it all. If we choose just to, Do one, uh, then we are potentially perpetuating some problematic practices in our classroom. But if we can do it together by pairing these ideas and these practices, then it really can be super, super beneficial for our students. So, in summary, regulation is a very important element, as I just said, but we have to remember to situate the regulatory processes within the context of the school day um, and keep in mind that, you know, Being trauma informed is so much more than simply handing out therapy. Um, It is, it's a large shift in many of the things that we are used to seeing and doing in the classroom. So, thank you, thank you for listening. Uh, As you know, I study regulation. So, this is, I could talk about this forever. I also um, could answer a million questions about it and would love to. So, if there are things that come up after you're listening to this, Please, please let me know and I'm happy to talk through them more. I hope that you are having an excellent day and that you yourself are able to um, find some regulatory strategies that work for you. next time we will talk a bit more about equity, talk later on about teacher regulation um, and some behavior interventions. Talk to you later. Bye.